Hello and welcome back to Interpreting India. As the world looks hopefully to emerge from the shadow of the coronavirus pandemic, the first few months of 2022 have been defined by another variant of COVID-19, precarious geopolitical relations and a rapidly evolving technological landscape. This season, we at Carnegie India are examining many of the challenges and opportunities that India will confront in the coming decade. I'm your host Rahul Bhatia and this week we are discussing Turkey's geopolitical maneuvering in Europe, the Middle East and South Asia. Of late, Turkey's actions have come into the limelight. It notably delayed Sweden and Finland's membership in NATO in exchange for fulfilling its own security demands. Meanwhile, it continues to supply drones and other weapons to Ukraine to resist Russian aggression while maintaining its relationship with Moscow at the same time. Turkey has further been involved in the conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia as well as civil wars in Syria and Libya. It has also sought to expand its influence in South Asia by deepening its multifaceted cooperation with Pakistan. In this episode of Interpreting India, we discuss Turkey's role in shaping the Russia-Ukraine war and the rationale behind its actions. We will further look into Turkey's foreign policy in the Middle East and North Africa through the lens of its involvement in regional conflicts. how turkey's drones are influencing its foreign policy and finally what are the implications of turkey's engagement with south asia on india joining us today to discuss this topic is dr sonar chaptai uh, sonar chaptai is the bio family fellow and director of the turkish research program at the washington institute he has written extensively on us turkish relations turkish domestic politics and turkish nationalism publishing in scholarly journals and major international print media including the wall street journal the washington post new york times foreign affairs and the atlantic he also appears regularly on broadcast media his latest book a sultan in autumn erdogan faces turkey's uncontainable forces was published last year in june so now welcome to interpreting india it's a great pleasure to be with you all thanks for hosting me i appreciate it If I could start off with a subject that has dominated uh, the international landscape for the last six months, um, the war in Ukraine, uh, we have seen Turkey engaging not only Russia and Ukraine in this conflict, but also the EU, NATO, and the United States. Um, on on the one hand, it condemned Russia for invading Ukraine, but did not join the sanctions regime. It has also continued to supply Ukraine with weapons, most notably drones. but at the same time it has maintained economic ties with russia could you explain the rationale behind turkey's decision making in the conflict and how rather how long can it continue its balancing act if i can put it that way i would say uh, that turkey's foreign policy is quite interesting to study uh, turkey is basically a middle sized power but it's a country that punches about its weight um and it's been doing this because it has quite an effective military but also because it's playing different sides in global conflicts. Uh Turkish foreign policy uh until the rise of President Erdogan's Justice and Development AKP party until uh in the very beginning of this uh, century was a foreign policy that was staunchly anchored in the West and Turkey basically saw itself as part of NATO family and was in accession talks with the EU and would oftentimes move, move in lock and step with the United States. That's not the case anymore. Uh, President Erdogan after coming to power delivered quite phenomenal growth for over a decade Turkey's economy almost doubled in size and I think that together with Erdogan's ambitions to make Turkey a great power again meant that Turkey started to gradually drift away from its foreign policy of always uh, moving in tandem and uh, with the United States and with NATO and with the West 
So now what Turkey is doing is, I think, for about 10 years or so, it's been ser- searching for an, what I call an autarkic foreign policy, standalone. You know, it still considers itself to be part of the West. It's still a NATO member. It's still uh, uh, courting close relations with EU countries. But it is doing what it wants to do, even if at times in conflict with the West. And we saw this in Syria, where Turkey and U.S. have diverging policies. And now you also see this in uh, the Ukraine war. Turkey's take on the Ukraine war, uh, number one, is that Ankara will do everything it can to make sure that Kiev does not fall under Moscow's rule. This has a lot to do with Turkey's view of the Black Sea security and strategic environment. Uh, There are only two large powers around the Black Sea, Turkey and Russia. Turkey sees all other Black Sea countries, including Ukraine, as necessary allies with which to build a a block against Russia, which is the militarily superior power around the Black Sea. So Turkey has excellent ties with all its Black Sea neighbors, other than Russia, of course. That includes Georgia, Ukraine, Romania, Bulgaria, and Moldova. So militarily, Turkey supports Ukraine, provides it with drones, and is on board. But economically, Turkey decided to not come come on board with the sanctions targeting Russia, and it has opened, uh, kept itself open for business with Russia. That has a lot to do with, as I said earlier, Turkey's quest to be an autarkic power. Turkey is basically saying, I do not have to listen to the United States on every issue. I will only align with the U.S. where my interests align with the U.S. Otherwise, I'll do what I need to do and enter President Erdogan. In Turkey these days, so much is about Erdogan, uh, specifically his plans to get reelected in 2023 elections. Uh, Erdogan's popularity has been slipping lately. That is a lot to do with the lack of economic growth. His bright side is that he delivered growth, lifted people out of poverty. But now that he's facing a challenge since 2018, when the Turkish economy went into recession for the first time. The economy has exited recession, but uh, macro indicators are not very good. Inflation went from single digits to 70 percent, seven zero. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, the country's uh, economic fi- finances do not look to be in great shape. So what Erdogan wants to do is he wants to open up the economy with a in a phenomenal way ahead of the elections. And he wants uh, foreign cash to flow to Turkey uh, because he's trying to uh, keep the lira stable. And for that, he's saying, I will keep trade with Russia going. And so I think Turkey is courting Russian investment, Russian trade. And so once again, it's a policy, I would say, as a result towards the war in Ukraine, where Turkey's pro-Ukraine, but not anti-Russia, which is why I think it's a fascinating country to study. Uh, one of the reasons I love writing and studying about Turkey is that I believe if countries could be vegetables, Turkey would be the analytical onion. The analytical onion, because it does not have a core, it defies Manichaean binarisms and broad generalizations. And Ukraine policy is a case in point. Turkey is militarily supporting Ukraine, but economically friendly with Russia. So I would say its policy is pro-Ukraine neutrality, uh, using the analytical onion uh, uh, analogy here. Wonderful. And would you say that this is more of a short-term thing? Because in the long term, um, we're assuming that Russia's economy is going to be significantly impacted by the war. Um, So Turkey would once again go on to prioritize relations with the EU and the West? Uh, No, I think that Erdogan's policy is going to be uh, basically uh, making sure that he is Russia's economic outlet to the world. Recently, Erdogan had a meeting with Russian uh, leader uh, so, uh, Putin in Sochi, a Black Sea resort. 
I think uh, I always love to follow these meetings because a lot comes out of these secret meetings in which Erdogan and Putin meet. I call these meetings two KGB, one Turk. Two KGB meaning Putin and his uh, translator. Erdogan is not allowed to bring his own translator, so he's the Turk in the room with two Russians. And a lot of deals are made at those meetings. So um, looks like the last meeting produced an outcome where um, Turkey committed to uh, pay some of the, the money it owes Russia for natural gas purchases in rubles. That's good for Russia. Turkey also agreed to allow Russian tourists to use a Russian credit card system called Mir, as opposed to the American ones. Uh, and so Russians can now visit Turkey. And not a surprise, the number of Russians coming to Turkey is booming. The number of Russian companies established in Turkey is uh, booming. I think a, a lot of Russians, upper middle class families are buying homes in Turkey, kind of to put their money away uh, say for safekeeping. Some are doing this to get Turkish citizenship. If you invest in more than $400,000 in Turkey, that gives you the right to become a citizen. So I would say Turkey's attracted, uh, you know, uh, billions of Russian uh, investment, billions of dollars of Russian investment coming in. More importantly, at the Sochi meeting, it looks like uh, Putin decided to wire maybe $5 billion or more to Turkey. Uh, this is uh, in uh, terms of payment to, for this uh, nuclear power project that the Russians are building in Turkey called Akkuyu. But uh, that power project has been built for many years now. It's not going to be finished soon. I would say that money is going to trickle down Turkey's economy uh, and uh, create a se temporary sense of relief. And, you know, Turkey is, is a middle-sized power. Its economy is less than a trillion dollars in size. So $10 billion Russian money here, $10 billion Russian money from there will make a difference. Not only that, but Turkey is also cultivating uh, money now from the Persian Gulf. Erdogan had a big challenge um, when he, uh, he launched this foreign policy about a decade ago to make Turkey a, a, a leader country by and through leadership of Muslim-majority societies. The first part of his vision was that Turkey would establish soft power across the Middle East. That has not really happened. Um, Turkey now has fewer friends and allies in the Middle East than ever before, including before Erdogan came to power. Um, it's only real allies Qatar. And it's also on friendly terms with uh, Libya's internationally recognized government and the uh, Iraqis, uh, Kurdish region's uh, ruling party, Kurdistan Democratic Party. So it has one country and two entities as its friends and allies in the Middle East. Not a great record. But what Erdogan is doing now is he's trying to reset ties. And we can discuss why these ties were not good uh, or have fallen apart. He's trying to reset ties with Gulf Cooperation Council, GCC members. Uh, that effort worked successfully with the Emiratis. Erdogan also reached out to Saudi Crown Prince. Turkey just reset with Israel. And Gulf money is also flowing to Turkey. So I think Erdogan's um, uh, election platform for 2023 is to open the economy spectacularly well, perhaps, you know, near $100 billion flowing into Turkey because of uh, Gulf and Russian investments coming in, strong tourism season, give the citizens a sense of prosperity and tell them, look, the world is going through a global crisis. There is the risk of World War III next door. Uh, Europeans will probably suffer from lack of Russian gas this winter. Uh, Turkey won't. It has good ties with Russia. Erdogan will tell his citizens, you live well while Europeans are freezing. Who do you really want to elect? You know, a tried global leader or the opposition that has been trying for 20 years to oust me? Do you really want to try the unknown or do you want to go uh, with the known and tried? I think that's going to be his platform. And I would say playing between U.S., NATO, Russia and uh, Arab countries 
is how Erdogan hopes to make it to the finishing line. Okay, I will come back to the Middle East uh, later on. But if I could just bring you back um, to the Russia-Ukraine war. Um, so President Erdogan has offered a mediate between Russia and Ukraine in the past. And um, Turkey played a key role in brokering a deal between Russia and Ukraine to allow the resumption of Ukrainian grain exports um, through the Black Sea. Um, do you see a future mediation role for Turkey in this conflict? Absolutely. I think that Erdogan's election platform will have three agenda items. The first is going to say, I have restored growth. The second is going to say, I have reset Turkey's ties with all its neighbors. Never mind that under Erdogan, the economy collapsed. Under, under Erdogan, Turkey's ties with its neighbors collapsed. He's going to basically rewrite the narrative, write the narrative as he likes it. And he can do it because he controls over 90% of the uh, conventional media in Turkey. So his uh, narrative be- could become the fact and reality. And so he can basically say, vote for me because I have restored growth. I have restored ties with our neighbors. But the third piece of his platform is going to be that he'll also say, look, I'm also a global leader. I'm the one who can bring Russia and Ukraine together. And that's true. So far, the only agreement in which the Russians and Ukrainians have kind of, uh, you know, signed under the same deal since the beginning of the war is this grain corridor. And it's been executed by Erdogan's intervention. Uh, you know, everybody appreciates it because it alleviates the risk of global hunger. Uh, even those who basically say, you know, uh, uh, be hard on Russia, be tough on Russia, won't object to this deal. So I think part of Erdogan's uh, game plan for the next six months is to bring the two leaders together at a negotiating table. If he can, of course, you know, have Russia and Ukraine agree to some kind of a peace deal or a ceasefire on the way to a peace deal, that makes him look so good internationally. And also domestically, it underlines his brand as a global leader versus all the other uh, politicians who are trying to unseat him, who would look as local competitors. Right. Um, And another aspect of the war in Ukraine was um, Finland and Sweden applying to join NATO in a move of historical significance. Um, Turkey initially opposed the move, but withdrew its veto after being given some assurances. now, Turkey may have legitimate concerns over here, but its actions haven't been well-received in Europe, to say the least, um, especially given that the expansion of NATO is a key Western response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, how has Turkey's opportunism uh, impacted its long-term relationship with Europe? Turkey, indeed, I would say, has legitimate concerns regarding the existence of PKK networks in Sweden. The PKK, also known as Kurdistan Workers' Party, is a terror-designated entity by NATO, so that means Turkey and U.S., but also uh, potentially by Sweden if Sweden were to become a EU member. Uh, Turkey, I mean, Finland, I think, is a collateral damage of this process. There are no uh, concerns regarding PKK networks there, but because Finland and Sweden are moving their accession processes in tandem, they both got caught in the Turkish objection. The issue here is that there were already talks behind closed doors between European uh, NATO diplomats and Turkish and Swedish diplomats about how to uh, address Turkey's concerns. But President Erdogan decided to take these negotiations out. And he did it, I think, because he realized that there's something for him to gain here. He's quite an astute politician. He knows how to win elections. He also now knows how to use international developments to his advantage to create this brand for himself as a strongman leader globally. That makes Turkey proud, right? So uh, he decided to live, raise objections to Swedish accession, uh, knowing that 
Turkey is a member of NATO. NATO decides on unanimity. So if Turkey vetoes, doesn't matter. Everybody else agrees to Swedish accession. It will not happen. And so he knows that at the end of the day, the Swedes will have to make some concessions to Turkey on the PKK issue. Now, the Swedes may not meet all of Turkey's demands regarding PKK networks, but they'll have to meet some of them. And again, Erdogan controls a large chunk of the media in Turkey. Even if these are minor uh, and not necessarily major concessions, Erdogan can write a narrative of complete victory. Uh, As I say, he can basically say, this is the reverse of the Ottoman defeat at Vienna. You know, I have had the Europeans go down on their knees, beg for us to come in. They had to agree to our terms. Um, uh, Turkey recently approved the first stage of Swedish accession uh, after objecting to it. That came after a phone call from President Biden to President Erdogan. Erdogan must have been extremely happy since he came to power. He's been craving for interaction with Biden. It has a lot to do with uh, this uh, fact that uh, notwithstanding Erdogan's efforts in the last uh, decade or so to change Turkey's identity at home from a secular one to an Islamic one and internationally uh, from a European one to a Middle Eastern one. And I would say these efforts, we can discuss them, have not been completely successful, but notwithstanding his efforts to change Turkey's identity to an Islamic one and Middle Eastern one, there's a fact. Turkey's economy is completely integrated with the West, with the European Union, which is Turkey's key trading partner, which is the major source of foreign, foreign direct investment coming to Turkey. And also with the U.S., uh, it's not a, a U.S. is not a key economic player in Turkey, uh, but U.S.-Turkish ties are largely symbolic. I think it was Bismarck who once said, Turkey's east if you come from the west and west if you, if you come from the east. So when investors are about to put money into Turkey, they don't just look at macro indicators. They also worry about Turkey's direction. They want to know that it's not going away, leaving the west, right? So Erdogan wants to cultivate good ties with Biden in order to create a, a narrative for the markets that Turkey's okay, it's not going anywhere, you can invest money in it. Again, this is part of his game to reopen the economy strongly uh, together with Russian and Gulf and uh, money and tourism revenues. He wants uh, Western uh, financial inflows from US and from Europe, and those inflows won't come in if US Turkish ties don't look good. So Erdogan used the crisis over Swedish accession to NATO to uh, uh, procure a phone call from Biden. It worked. Biden actually met Erdogan at the NATO summit. And of course, after that, Erdogan said yes. But it's not final until it's final. Uh, Swedish accession to NATO will be decided, at, uh, finalized at NATO's next year uh, summit in Lithuania in May. Guess what? Turkey's elections in June, just about a month after that. I think that Erdogan will uh, squeeze this until the last moment. Uh, maybe we'll see other crises ahead of Swedish accession. Turkey will raise new objections. Swedes will have to meet some more demands. Again, they won't be meeting all of Turkey's demands. Doesn't matter. Erdogan will uh, take these uh, concessions and run and say, hey, this is the reverse of Ottoman defeat at Vienna. I made Turkey and Turks proud again. And uh, especially if this happens a month before Turkish elections, that Swedes make new concessions, it makes him look very good. Erdogan benefit from his strongman image globally in domestic politics. And I think this is the linkage that he has established between Turkey's very legitimate demands concerns regarding PKK networks in Sweden and his own uh, re-election prospects. So I would say uh, keep watching for new crises regarding Swedish and uh, Finnish accession to NATO later this year, but even more so uh, ahead of uh, Turkish elections 
and overlapping with uh, NATO's next summit in Lithuania. Uh, that will be in um, uh, May 2023. Right. Um, so it seems like Erdogan is mainly focused on winning re-election and not so much about the long term. Is that correct to say? Yeah, I, I would say that's not unfair. Erdogan basically is only worried about kind of opening up the economy strongly. Macro indicators don't look good, but he wants to uh, bring a large amount of cash from the Gulf and from Russia. Um, for him, these elections are all about survival. He has until recently won over a dozen nationwide elections um, on a platform of strong economic growth. Uh, he also has a dark side. He's a nativist populist politician. He demonizes, brutalizes, and cracks down on demographics unlikely to vote for him. So while he has a base that loves him, he also has an opposition that loathes him. And the problem of Turkey is that there's so much and, uh, and such deep societal polarization that there's almost nobody left in the middle. So for Erdogan, losing is not an option. Uh, he uh, fears uh, that he'll be prosecuted by his opponents if he loses elections, and he'll do everything to win. So I think for him in the short term, winning is uh, more than short, long-term uh, economic and political stability. He's saying, I'll cross that bridge when I get to it. Let me win elections first, and he'll do everything that is necessary uh, to that end. Right. Um, if I could now pivot to the Middle East um, and North Africa as well. Um, so the war between Ukraine and Russia is not uh, the only conflict Turkey has been involved in. Um, it's played an important role in training and arming Azeri forces in the conflict over Nagorno-Karabakh. It threw its weight behind the internationally recognized government in the Libyan civil war and remains a vital player in Syria. Um, how do these conflicts feature in Turkey's larger policy in the region? So I would say uh, Turkey's active uh, engagement in these conflicts in Libya and uh, in South Caucasus uh, are part of a foreign policy pivot under Erdogan. Uh, I would say uh, Erdogan, who has been in power for two decades now, has had a number of pivots. Uh, after About a decade after coming to power, taking stock with strong economic growth uh, in the country, he decided to follow a more autarkic foreign policy. He said, I'll make Turkey a standalone great power by and through leadership of Muslims. And I'll say, I'll start with the Middle East. So he engaged Turkey uh, as an active participant in Arab uprisings. He thought that he could shape the outcome of these uprisings, starting with Egypt. And then, of course, uh, have friendly governments come to power, and then Turkey's influence would uh, multiply. That's did not, that did not really work out so well. Uh, Turkey supported Muslim Brotherhood, rose to power in Egypt quite uh, fast. But the Brotherhood fell from power in Egypt even faster. Um, and the, the new government in Egypt uh, by General Sisi now sees the Brotherhood as its greatest domestic and external threat. Uh, and the Brotherhood uh, enjoyed refuge in Turkey until recently. And so that's why Turkish-Egyptian ties have collapsed. Together with this, Turkey's ties with uh, Gulf Cooperation Council, GCC members, and Israel, which generally oppose the Brotherhood. In the case of Israel, it's the Hamas, which is the Brotherhood's Palestinian extension, uh, and these countries in GCC, so Saudi Arabia and the UAE and their allies, monarchies across the region, Jordan and Israel, uh, not a monarchy, but Israel and others have also stepped in. And so now Turkey has actually uh, is facing uh, the largest alliance of anti-Turkey powers in the Middle East. So then came Erdogan's second pivot. He said, fine, if I cannot uh, obtain diplomatic clout, 
then I will make up for missing diplomatic clout with sheer military power. Turkey's military made an amazing comeback from the 2016 coup attempt. Only six weeks after the coup, Turkey carried out an incursion into Syria to go after uh, this Kurdish group called People's Protection Forces, YPG. Uh, it's an offshoot of Kurdistan Workers' Party, a terror-designated entity. Uh, the YPG has been an, a partner to the U.S. and Syria to fight ISIS. Turkey was never happy about this policy. It kind of gave it grudging approval and saying, fine, we don't like it, but you can work with the YPG so long as it helps defeat ISIS. After ISIS was defeated, Turkey told the United States and said, you told us this policy was transactional and temporary, but it looks like your relationship with the YPG is becoming sort of an open-ended endorsement. And the U.S. asked for more patience. And at this point, Turkey decided to kind of go on its own into uh, Syria. And so that was the incursion that came six weeks after the coup attempt. The military has since carried out another three, other three incursions into Syria, all of which aimed at the, the YPG. And not only that, but now Turkey is also kind of extending its wings in areas beyond its borders in Libya, across the Mediterranean, in South Caucasus, in the Indian Ocean for the first time since the Ottomans in the 16th century. The Turks are present. Uh, the largest Turkish uh, mission in the world is in Mogadishu. And the largest embassy in Mogadishu is the Turkish embassy. Turkey has a training mission there, a military base. Turkey has building a military base in Qatar. Uh, this is quite, uh, you know, an, an outreach. So I think what Turkey is doing is it is making up for missing diplomatic power with sheer military power. Its military is quite effective. It's one of the most, the second largest in NATO after the U.S., uh, one of the most modern. And it has uh, these drones. They're amazing. Um, they do a good job, uh, for instance, helping Ukraine deny the Russians air superiority. And they have also helped the Azeris win the war against Armenia, Nagorno-Karabakh. And most recently, they helped the government in Tripoli stop the advance of General Haftar, backed by UAE and Egypt, uh, against the uh, Libyan capital of Tripoli. So I would say uh, Turkey can punch about its weight because it has an effective military and also because it has a native arms industry that makes these drones. Uh, I was told by a friend that the ammunition for a Turkish drone can cost less than a U.S.-made drone itself. So these are not only effective, but they're also cost-effective. They're cheap, and that's why uh, many countries are trying to procure them. I just tweeted this morning a map uh, showing uh, countries that own Turkish drones. Uh, for uh, listeners in India, that's interesting. Of course, uh, Pakistan has acquired them, and so has Bangladesh. Uh, and also a number of other countries are trying to acquire them in Africa, in Eastern Europe, Poland and Baltics and Bulgaria, Slovakia, Serbia. So clearly uh, this is an effort that goes beyond the Muslim majority countries, but it's just a new sign of a Turkey rising militarily. Of course, all that depends on the economy. Economy is Erdogan's Achilles heel, right? If the economy tanks, uh, Turkey, you know, won't be able to flex its muscle and engage in these costly endeavors overseas. And Erdogan will lose elections. If the economy recovers, Turkey will continue to flex its muscles globally. And Erdogan, of course, will win the election. So it's so much hinges on how the economy in Turkey looks in, let's say, six months to a year. Right. Could I ask you a little bit to elaborate on how drones are um, sort of shaping Turkey's foreign policy, especially, as you mentioned, it's quoting several low and middle income countries to sell them. And um, they've obviously been pretty effective in conflicts throughout the region. 
So Turkey's drone policy has two aspects. One is it's selling drones to allies, Azerbaijan, Pakistan, and Libya's uh, Tripoli government. Uh, and second, it's selling it to countries it wants to court as allies, you know, Serbia and Bulgaria, Poland and Baltics, East European NATO countries, all of which are aligned with Turkey in the case of Russian aggression on Ukraine. Uh, it's not an accident that uh, all of Russia's neighbors from Finland in the north down to Turkey in the south are united in this effort to oppose Russia and Ukraine. Uh, so I think the drone policy is helping Turkey uh, boost existing alliances and build new ones. Coming to one of Turkey's customers, Pakistan, um, Turkey and Pakistan have expanded defense ties of late. Turkey is a major arms supplier to Pakistan, including warships. Recently, President Erdogan stated that Turkey would provide all support needed to strengthen Pakistan's military infrastructure. What is the scope of the strategic partnership between Pakistan and Turkey? I would say Turkish-Pakistani participation in the strategic uh, sense is quite significant. Uh, together with U.S., uh, with which Turkey has historic ties, um, Azerbaijan, with which Turkey has ethnic and uh, close uh, political ties, and, uh, and South Korea, which Turkey went into uh, support against communism in 1950s in the Korean War. Pakistan is among, I would say, the quartet of countries considered to be Turkey's closest allies. Um, uh, why? Uh, this is a lot to do with history. Um, as an historian of late Ottoman Empire and 20th century Turkey, I'm always fascinated by the strength of ties between Turkey and Pakistan, but also South Asian Muslims in general. It's a lot to do with late Ottoman history in the 19th century. Uh, now, uh, sometimes I have friends who jokingly ask me and say, Soner, uh, how would you define the borders of the Middle East? And I tell them, look, if you go east of Turkey, start walking, the first time you run into a country where Muslims like Turks again, you're not in the Middle East anymore. And that country is Pakistan. Uh, it again goes back to 19th century, not just for Pakistan, for, but South Asian Muslims in general. The Ottoman Empire, a late sultan called Abdul Hamid II, um, had a sultan with a vision. Uh, this sultan realized that the empire was weak. He is an um, uh, autocratic, but also modernizing sultan, uh, someone with two faces. And he also wanted to make the Ottoman state more powerful. At the time, the Ottomans faced two global adversaries, the British Empire and the Russian Empire. So Abdul Hamid II in the late 19th century sent emissaries as the caliph to Indian and uh, British Muslims, and also even to South Africa to kind of uh, rally support for Istanbul and Ottoman Empire again among them. And that appeal worked. Uh, the Ottomans were able to build soft power across Central Asia with Turkic Muslims, but also uh, among the subcontinent's Muslims. Uh, so powerful that at the end of World War I, when Turkey was invaded and occupied by the Brits and the Allies, uh, the largest uh, support to Turkey came from a fundraising campaign uh, among India's Muslims at the time. Uh, people thought that they were going to help liberate the caliphate from British occupation. Ataturk took their money, bought um, airplanes, uh, from communist Russia, helped use these to defeat invading Greek armies and their allies by proxy, the British, and liberated Turkey. And of course, then he abolished the caliphate, I would say, to the great disappointment of the fundraising campaign, uh, which thought it was helping sustain the caliphate. And then Ataturk pursued his uh, secularizing reforms. But the takeaway is that there is this deep historic Empathy, I would say, among uh, many Muslims in, in not only Pakistan, but in India and South Asia in general, 
towards Turkey. And that uh, translated into strongly pro-Pakistani sentiments after the partition. Turkey became Pakistan's uh, one of uh, best allies and Pakistan reciprocated to the extent that uh, Pakistan is very in, among very few countries where Turkey deals with anybody in power. If the regime changes, if there's a coup, it doesn't matter. Uh, uh, Turkey uh, behaves as if nothing has shifted in the relationship. This just shows that this is a state-to-state relationship and not a leader-to-leader one. And uh, I would say, similarly, of course, to Azerbaijan, with which Turkey has good ties, it's therefore not a surprise that Turkey and Azerbaijan recently have invited Pakistan to a forum where the three countries are now you know, trying to bring together a closer a cooperation in many fields. So I would say this is probably a permanent of Turkish foreign policy. It's not something that Erdogan created. It's even not something that 20th century Turkey created. I think it goes back to Sultan Abdul Hamid. It also goes back to uh, independence movement in South Asia, in British India. And of course, I think not all uh, Indian Muslims who fundraise wanted to uh, sustain the caliphate. Some of them just wanted to, you know, teach the Brits a good lesson. If not in India, then in Istanbul, and they were successful. And I think that uh, history to this day informs uh, Turkey's sympathy uh, for Muslims in South Asia in general, but also it explains why Turkey and Pakistan have such good ties. And I think for Pakistan, of course, having a friend inside NATO, having a large Muslim country support it is uh, something that's quite valuable. I think it's interesting you say this also because on the one hand, it seems that Turkey is quoting investment, but it looks like Pakistan is also quoting Turkish investment. So um, recently, Prime Minister Shahbaz Sharif um, showed a willingness to expand the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, or CPEC, to include Turkey. Um, so my question is, how can Turkey actually contribute to CPEC? And given the situation of the Turkish economy, can Ankara actually make a meaningful economic commitment to CPEC? So I would say while Turkish-Pakistani ties are excellent, Turkish-Chinese ties are not. So whenever there's a triad that includes Turkey, China, Pakistan, I'm skeptical about it. This has a lot to do with the fact that Turkey happens to be the center of the Uyghur diaspora globally. Uh, you know, uh, East Turkestan, Xinjiang, uh, a Chinese province, was a vassal state of China until the communist revolution. Uh, at the time of the communist revolution, this area was incorporated into China, fell under its complete rule, and its ruling elites, uh, Uyghurs, uh, the Khans and their descendants, fled to Turkey. Uh, this was the time of Turkey's entry into NATO. Turkey was a staunch U.S. ally. Of course, it was more than happy to receive uh, political elites fleeing communist China, especially if these political elites were also Turkic elites uh, related to Turks through language. Uyghur and Turkish are related languages, and there are a lot of historic and cultural ties between Uyghurs and Turks. So Turkey then became the center of the Uyghur diaspora, and uh, other uh, hubs of this diaspora have formed in Germany, in the U.S., in Northern Virginia, uh, near Washington, D.C., but Turkey still is the largest and also the historic center of the Uyghur opposition to China. The Chinese know that. So Turkey has tried to play nice with China. Again, Erdogan cultivated, uh, you know, Chinese soft loans to build metro lines and infrastructure projects. He's trying to, he was trying to restore economic growth through mega projects until recently. He also tried to secure a swap line with the Chinese central bank. Uh, the Chinese have not reciprocated to any of these overtures because uh, although Turkey has been completely quiet 
on what's happening in Xinjiang. The Chinese know that, uh, notwithstanding Ankara's quiet policy, Uyghurs are in Turkey. Uh, the, Turkey is the hub of this diaspora globally. So I think China really does not appreciate Turkey's uh, position on this issue and has stayed away from it. So I would say any triad where Turkey, India, China, and Pakistan are together, it's probably not a flourishing one. Uh, while Turkey and Pakistan get along well, Pakistan and China get along well, Turkey and China do not get along well. And what would be the scope of sort of um, Turkish investment in Pakistan bilaterally? I would say most of the investment is in infrastructure projects. And I think this is kind of how Erdogan is also hoping to boost economic growth, right? He wants to attract investment, uh, cash inflows. Uh, Turkey is also going through a strong tourism season. But Turkey's, I would say, greatest export other than cars is its construction industry. Uh, and I think, again, maybe this, you can explain this through the Ottoman history as an historian of the Ottomans. I'm fascinated that, you know, the Ottomans uh, did not produce a lot of great thinkers and writers and playwrights, but they produced a lot of great architects. Uh, you know, uh, the, the many mosques and structures and bridges uh, of Istanbul and other parts of the Ottoman Empire are a testimony to that. I would say the most famous Ottoman civilian other than a sultan is an Ottoman architect. He's known as Mimar Sinan, Sinan the architect. It's not an accident, of course, that this is the most uh, known Ottoman civilian, uh, that he is an architect. And I think the legacy of that is that to this day, Turkey's construction companies are its greatest export in terms of services. Um, they will play a big role in Ukraine's reconstruction when there's a ceasefire, uh, which will help Erdogan because Many of the large construction companies are linked politically to the Turkish president, and they kind of create a spindle effect, right? So they get big contracts from the government, and then they, of course, hand out smaller contracts to their supporters, and that money trickles down to the electorate. So there's this patronage mechanism, which works really well, and I think Pakistan is also part of that. I see Turkey building highways, infrastructure projects. I would not be surprised, I haven't looked it up, if these projects are mostly given to uh, what are called the Five Sisters the five large construction companies linked to President Erdogan, uh, from where, of course, the money trickles down uh, to the electorate. My final question to you is that in 2019, Turkey announced the Asia Anew initiative to enhance its ties with the continent. Um, this would naturally entail expanding its diplomatic footprint in South Asia. What is Turkey's capacity to actually expand its diplomatic footprint in South Asia? And what does this mean for India? Turkey has been expanding uh, its diplomatic footprint uh, for over a decade now, again, in line with President Erdogan's foreign policy of becoming a global player, a regional player first, and then a global player next. Um, you know, Turkey has, the number of Turkish missions have multiplied many times over, for instance, across Africa. Uh, when Erdogan came to power, Turkey had just about a dozen missions across the continent, more than half of them in North Africa. Uh, you know, abutting the Mediterranean, a region with which Turkey has historic ties, because these areas were controlled by the Ottomans. So Turkey had just just around half a dozen missions across sub-Saharan Africa when Erdogan came to power. Now that's nearly 50 of them. Uh, that means an embassy almost in every African capital and sometimes uh, other missions, consulates across. Uh, the effort is multiplying in Latin America, not as significant in South Asia, I would say. And again, I would say that has a lot to do with the fact that while Turkish-Pakistani uh, relations are excellent, you can't say the same for Turkish-Indian ties. But I would say uh, Turkey is uh, going to make these efforts to broaden its diplomatic presence. And Turkish diplomatic presence always comes with the presence of Turkish airlines. 
which I think is Turkey's, uh, you know, um, most known global brand after Erdogan. Erdogan is a name everybody knows. Everybody even knows how to spell his name. And Turkish Airlines is a close second. Uh, you know, it now flies to more destinations than any other airline in the world. It actually flies to more destinations in Africa uh, than does Air France. Uh, you know, the, the former colonial overlord of much of the uh, continent. Uh, and I think while these efforts are, are promising for Turkey, they'll be sustained only if the economy uh, remains strong. So the economy is not only Erdogan's Achilles heel. Uh, he will not be able to win next elections, however autocratic he is, unless he delivers strong economic growth. Economy is also Turkey's Achilles heel. You know, if the economy is strong, Turkey will continue to uh, extend its wings and fly globally. If not, it will have to come down to earth. So, Ned, thank you so much for this very informative discussion. Thanks for hosting me. It was great to be with you. I appreciate it. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. To make sure you don't miss it, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about our research and team, you can visit carnegieindia.org. You can also find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening and see you next time.